Michael, thanks for the introduction. I have wanted to come to Franciscan University for a number of years, and um, Steubenville is not on my way from Atlanta to somewhere else, uh, so I'm glad I got invited up here for this special occasion uh, because I've always admired what this school stands for and the students uh, who come here and the faculty who teach here, so, um, so I'm grateful to be with you, and I'm honored to uh, ask, be asked to speak to you about God in the marketplace. Um, yeah, is God in the marketplace? Well, of course he is. I mean, we know theologically God is everywhere. The real question is, how ought Frank or Joe or Susan to act in the marketplace given that God is there and should be recognized? Because we all know just because God is there doesn't mean we will recognize him. And so we understand that God exists and he's everywhere, but when it comes to recognizing him in the marketplace, the devil is in the details. The devil inserts himself into the process of how we try to implement our beliefs when we're in the world a world which is increasingly secular and pagan. So the real question is, how do we conduct ourselves in a world in which our belief is not the dominant belief and may even be a persecuted belief? I can't say I've succeeded in this endeavor, but I do recognize it as the challenge that we all face. And at least some of the time, I'm trying to meet that challenge. Now, I'm going to speak to you as a businessman, Uh, because that's the world in which I live in most of the time. And it's the world that is increasingly under public scrutiny during this financial crisis that we've all gone through. I'm not a professor. I'm not a theologian. I'm a businessman. I was raised in my life. When I was a child, my father, he's he's an entrepreneur, and we didn't go hunting and fishing like a lot of people do with their, uh, uh, like a lot of boys do with their father. We went around and we looked at real estate and we... We collected rent, and we mowed lawns, and, and you know, I can remember when I was 12 years old, my father teaching me about depreciation and taxes and things of that nature. Um, so, you know, I was, that's how I was raised, and, 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 uh, and I'm happy for that, because it was a great time with my father, and he taught me a lot, but that's how my brother and I were raised, to think like business people. Um, I don't know how many of you all, there was a movie, gosh, it's probably now six or seven years old, came out called Cats and Dogs, and it was sort of an animated film. And, and if you saw it, I went because my daughter was younger at the time and I was taking her. And uh, it was, it, the, the funny part was you, you had the voices of these animated cats and dogs. And they did a really good job of sort of giving you the perspective of what it was like as a dog, you know, to smell all these things that humans don't smell and hear all these things that they don't smell. And so you got this perspective of what life was like as a dog. Um, and I think sometimes when I speak to people as a business person about faith, Uh, that's sort of what they're listening to. They're listening to a a dog's perspective. I've been living among the dogs for the last 30 years. And if you think about it, that's how Hollywood and and a lot of Washington and many others think of business people as dogs. How does Hollywood describe business people? Oftentimes as criminals. It's amazing how many times on television the business guy or businesswoman is a criminal. How does the media and many other politicians portray them? Not much better. 
Even well-meaning people tend to think of those in business as a necessary evil. Okay, we understand the world needs to have uh, uh, food delivered and services delivered, and we understand commerce has to take place, but it's a little bit dirty. And so we'd rather not be around it too much. Now, if we think of the nature of man, I mean, we, we know that, that man himself has, we, we have within us both animal, both that which is animal and that which is more than just animal. It is human. You, know, you, you all know what a satyr is. I mean, the image of a satyr. You've got this half beast, half man. Uh, uh, we all have a little bit of that in us. Business people do, too. The question is, how do we think about business, though, and the businessman or businesswoman, and their humanity, and, and what ought they to be? How should we define what it means to be a businessman? And by the way, I'm, sometimes I'm going to say businessman probably more often than businesswoman. I'm just using that term of art because it gets really awkward to say both every time. So, uh, but in defining it, how, how should we define somebody who's in business? Is it someone who tries to make money? Well, I mean, we all think of the people in business are trying to make money. If you think about it, how do you make money? I mean, do you really, you don't print it in your basement. How do you make money? Uh, it's, it's an odd concept. We use it all the time. But that's what, you know, that's one th thing we think about for people in business. They're there to make money. They're there to focus on the bottom line. You know, now, this is really intriguing. What, how do we accurately define the bottom line? Is it merely an accounting concept, the bottom line? They're there to obtain the maximum return for the minimum risk. There's something in, uh, those of you who may have studied business know, there's, there's something called the efficient frontier in business. It's a graph with an x-axis and a y-axis. One axis is return, the return on your investment. The other axis is risk. And the understanding is that there's an efficient frontier that runs in a diagonal like this. And that the more risk you take, the more return you get. And if you can get more return for a certain amount of risk, you're a good business person. Okay? You're getting more bang for the buck, if you will. Who gets the greatest return on capital? That's another definition of what we're supposed to do in business. Get a good return on capital. They're all part of the job description of what somebody in business is supposed to do. But you know, we will never understand people in business. And if we go into business, we'll never really understand ourselves if we, if we don't understand what a businessman is, what a businesswoman is, in the context of their true purpose. So let me start tonight with describing what the true purpose of someone in business is. The true purpose of the businessman is to know, love, and serve the Lord. That's why he's in business. And once we start to understand this, everything else starts to fall into place. The fact is, as you all know, that's the purpose for every single person in here. I mean, each one of us, that's our purpose, to know, love, and serve the Lord. Business people aren't different. They're human beings. That's what they're supposed to do. Does the business person still try to make money? Sure. But let's think about it. As I said, you can't make money except illegally by counterfeiting. So how do you get it? How do people in business get money? How do they, make, how do, they do it? Well, let's think. Where does money come from? You can steal it. You can gamble. You go play the lottery, and you put five dollars in it, and you come back with a thousand because you gambled it. Or you can create value for other people. And if you create value for other people, here's what's interesting in business. They will give you, they will give you some of their wealth. 
Nobody forces them to do this. If you run a, a market and you sell delicious peaches that people love, they will voluntarily give you some of their money for the peaches that you're providing to them. And see, what's interesting about business, Hollywood and much of the media, they only understand the first two of those three. They understand the idea of stealing to get money. They understand the idea of speculating to get money. The idea of actually creating value. I'm not saying no, no value is created in Hollywood. Some is. But the idea of someone who goes into work and creates value, and that's how the wealth is created, they don't understand that because they have deficient economic understanding. What is the definition of economics? Economics is the study of resources and their use. Christ was the best economist of all time. Christ said, What profiteth a man if he gains the riches of the world and loses his soul? That is an economic observation. The fact is that wealth is created through the expenditure of our energies. When we expend energy, we either waste it or we create with it. That's why it's not a zero-sum game. Now, do you all know what a zero-sum game is? A zero-sum game is like poker. Okay? When you play poker, if you win, it's only because I have lost. If I win, it's only because you've lost. Business can be a win-win game. Business is supposed to be a win-win game. If I grow corn and you raise sheep and then we trade, we're both better off. I now have corn and sheep. You now have sheep and corn. We're all better off. And by the way, that's a good thing. That's a thing with which God is pleased when we can trade like that. We actually create interrelationships with one another by creating value for one another, and that's a good thing. But most, many think that business is a zero-sum game, and they're aided and abetted by many well-meaning Christians who don't understand how wealth is created. The good business person is one who gathers data, studies it, and figures out how to maximize the output from the physical, from that which is physical, the laws of physics, from the physical process of transforming energy into wealth. That's what a good business person does. It's, it's actually not all that mysterious. The key to creating wealth is the creation of value that others aren't able to deliver. Now, in business, you're called to do this in an environment of uncertainty. Another word for uncertainty in business is risk. And so therefore, the person in business has to be a student of risk. Now, when we speak of risk, I would guess here at Franciscan, many of you may have run across uh, uh, the father of probability, Blaise Pascal. And Pascal talked a lot about risk. He was a mathematician. You all know the computer language is named after Pascal. And you may have heard of Pascal's wager. Many of you may have, but just as a, as a brief review, Pascal said in order to minimize risk, which risk is greater? That you lead a virtuous life and find out there is no heaven at the end of it. Or that you lead a licentious life and find out at the end there is a heaven and you're not there. Which is the greater risk? He was speaking the language of business people. That's what we in business have to do. We have to assess risk and decide what's the most prudential course to take. Yes, business people focus on the bottom line. But we have to, what we have to do, those of us who have been blessed with grace and with the truth, 
Part of what we have to do is help people in business define the real bottom line. That's what Pascal helped do with his wager. He helped define the real bottom line, eternity, and the consequences of eternity. Can business people focus on the real bottom line? Sure they can. But that real bottom line, the real bottom line, is the salvation of our own souls and the souls of others. That's the bottom line. If you're going to be a good businessman, you've got to understand that's the bottom line that yields the greatest wealth. Christ told us so. Look through the Gospels how many times he speaks in terms of return on investment. Christ is many times speaking of a return on investment, of some type of investment of our energy and our effort for eternity. Now, like I said, I'm not a professor. I'm not an academic. I'm one who observes data and I create strategy, and I try to optimize and economize. I take risk, and I seek returns. And I've been fortunate that wealth has been created through these decisions. We try to employ prudence in making these decisions based on the data we have. Now, I'm in merchant banking, as Michael mentioned. Um, and you may, you may wonder, what in the world is merchant banking? We essentially invest, I say we, my brother and I, we work together, and we invest our own capital in various business opportunities. Uh, a few years ago, my daughter, it was when she was uh, 15, and I thought, you know, she should spend the summer with me kind of as an apprentice and see what we do. So she started, she would come three days a week. So, and whatever we did, I, you know, I told her, Elizabeth, you got to read the newspaper because educated people read the newspaper. And so, you know, she had to read the New York Times every morning. And I said, don't believe everything that's in it, but you, you need to you know, start, start <laughs> learning about the world. So, so she did, and then she'd see me working on the computer, and then she'd see me reading the Wall Street Journal, and then she'd see me meeting with people. You know, she's watching me do all this stuff. And the second day, sometime in the afternoon, right, and she's been watching all this stuff, and she turned to me, and she said, Daddy, when do we make the money? You know, what, 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 what are you doing here? When do we, how does any of this create, what she was, and it caused a little bit of an existential crisis for me. I thought, what, what, do, what do I do to... to to make the money. I mean, we've, we've we got some money now that we've made, but what, what, what do we do to do this? And, and finally, I realized we're, we're actually, this is odd, we're, we actually create wealth by the decisions we make. And if you think about it, that's part, each of you all are, are either doing that or not doing that right now. Because the, the greatest wealth you can create right now are, are, is to cultivate the talent and the abilities and the soul that you have. And that's what this, this endeavor is about. And if you make bad decisions about that, you don't create wealth within yourself. If you make good decisions, you do create wealth. It's really kind of crazy. You would think, what, just making a decision? I mean, this is an area where people, people made money by working in steel mills. We know that's work. We know it's work when you're pounding away, you know, uh, 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 in, a, in a steel mill or down in a mine. But does it work to make decisions? Sure it is. Making prudential decisions is the area where wealth, where the most amount of wealth can be created. But it's hard to understand. It's hard for Hollywood, for Washington, or even Main Street to understand that wealth can be created by good decisions. And interestingly enough, wealth can be destroyed, which we've seen over the last few years, by bad decisions. My younger brother and I started with an investment. We'd, we'd saved our money. We started with about $160,000. And then we built up a business, and now we manage, this is not all ours, but we manage about $2.5 billion worth of assets. 
And if we don't do a good, the market basically pays us a fee for sort of managing that. If we, do a, if we make good decisions, we do well. If we make bad decisions, they'll make a, they'll make a determination that we're no longer very good at making decisions and, and the market will react. But not only am I in business, I'm a truth seeker. I'm, I guess as most of you all are, and that's why you're here at this university. I yearn for the truth. I've been trying to figure out the meaning of life since I can remember having thoughts. And thinking like a businessman, here's sort of the conclusion I've come to. First, as I mentioned earlier, man's purpose is to know, love, and serve the Lord. And we serve him by bringing others to him. Because the only tragedy, I remember a priest telling me this one time, the only real tragedy in this life is a soul that's not in communion with God. Second, and this is just, I'm just working methodically. If that's true, if the, if the first purpose is to know, love, and serve the Lord, the best path to communion with God is Jesus Christ. And if that's true, the third, the third th point is that if it's true that we're to know, love, and serve the Lord, and the best path is Jesus Christ, that it's incumbent upon us to strengthen and revitalize our church. Because I think our Catholic church is, is the, the most effective way to come to know Jesus Christ. And if that's true, then the greatest leverage, and keep in mind, what, what I'm trying to do in business is create leverage. Get a little bit of energy and money to move a whole lot of result. And in my philanthropy, I'm kind of trying to do the same thing. And so this is all a process of figuring out where's the greatest leverage to change society. And you, and you start by knowing, loving, and serving the Lord, and then the communion with Jesus Christ, and then revitalizing the Catholic Church. And then finally, and this is where the greatest leverage is, with the leaders of the church. And then the greatest leverage regarding the leaders of the church is with the future leaders of the church. And that's why I flew up from Atlanta to be with all of you today, because you're the future leaders of the church. I can't spend my energy and my time and my effort any more effectively in terms of a return on investment. Again, thinking like a businessman. I can't spend it any more effectively than being with all of you. The leverage of God, the leverage of Christ, the leverage of leaders, the leverage of the church, the leverage of new leaders being formed. There's nowhere else on the planet that I can invest with such potential results as right here in this room. So I hope I don't blow it and that I give you something that's, that's worthwhile. Because <laughs> I think you're going to then use that leverage to go out into your communities and form even more leaders that will help revitalize our church. You know, if you're betting right, it's amazing in investments. People wonder, I mean, how does Bill Gates get to be worth $50 billion? I mean, he kind of started with nothing. I mean, his parents were fairly well-to-do, kind of upper-middle class, but he basically started with hardly anything. If you make the right bets and have the right leverage, your return's incredible. It's in the thousand percents. And you know what? We're doing it. We're able to do that. The people gathered in this room, we can make that kind of investment because our predecessors have made that kind of investment and they've changed the world. And let me tell you what I'm talking about. Have any of you ever heard of a book called The Victory of Reason? It's by a sociologist named Rodney Stark out of Baylor. And I highly recommend it to you. In that book, Professor Stark explains how the West advanced so much more quickly than the rest of the world with advances in commerce and in art and in heroism and in virtue and how it's all a function of the degree to which Christian faith in the West 
welcomed reason, unlike almost any other culture around the globe over the last couple of thousand years. Christian faith welcomed reason and believed in man. Our Christian faith actually has a unique anthropology. You all know what that word anthropology means? I mean, I know everybody sort of knows, the, but the root of it, right? The root of that word, anthros, man, and logos, the truth, the reason behind man. We have a unique anthropology. That's why John Paul II was, was such a great anthropologist, among, obviously, among other things. He was such a great anthropologist. His understanding of the meaning of man. Christianity has worked. Christianity is the greatest investment mankind has ever made. It has created 2,000 years of saints. Conversely, when God's disinvited, society rots. So we, gotta, we in this room, we got to get it right. We, brothers and sisters in Christ, we are in this together in solidarity. And I want to make sure you understand what a businessman is because, first of all, some of you may be in that role. And if you're not, I want to make sure that you know why people in business need you and why you need them. Now, let's understand this. Man is a hungry animal. God made us hungry so we'd seek food, and that desire is good. But there are all kinds of food. There's the food of creativity. When man eats of the food of creativity, he's nourished, and that's what the best of business is about. If we do it right, if we do it right in business, we echo God's creative impulse. But there's also a ton of junk food that's readily available to this hungry creature. Do y'all, I don't know if y'all, any of y'all have read Joseph Pieper. He's one of my favorite philosophers. Pieper notes that the Latin word for virtue, virtus, means manliness. And the German word for virtue, tugend, derives from the verb meaning to be capable of. Pieper goes on to say, virtue is not external good behavior and respectability. A good human being is a human in a higher manner than a bad one. He is in every respect more capable. Thus, virtue is the expression we use to describe the fact that man is exercising his essential abilities, that he is realizing his essential potentialities, that he is doing what is good, and not because he must, but because he wants to and chooses to. That's your built-in hook. At the end of the day, people in business, they want to be real men, they want to be real women. They've tried materialism, and they know it's junk food. What they're really hungry for is virtue. Because let's think about it. What did Pinocchio want to be? Pinocchio did not want to be an accomplished puppet. Okay? No matter how accomplished, he didn't want to be a puppet. Pinocchio wanted to be a real boy. People in business, they want to be real human beings, reflecting the image of their creator. If you go into business, that's what you ought to be, and they, and they sense that. They're like Pinocchio, but they don't quite get it. Sometimes they go off to Pleasure Island, right, and start growing the donkey ears and tail. Because, you know, in that environment, there's, there's obstacles in the marketplace. There are obstacles to us following our path as Christians. As people in business, we're called to create wealth in the context of uncertainty, as I mentioned earlier. And that's directly related to risk. We have to be students of risk. 
So what do we do? Well, the prudent thing to do oftentimes in business is to hedge your risk. Y'all have heard of hedge funds? Hedge funds are designed to hedge risk, to reduce the risk of an investment. So we take precautions against risk. We buy insurance. Most people in here have car insurance, right? That's so if some calamity, some uncertain risk happens, you know, even though you pay some money in car insurance, if an accident happens, you're sort of hedged. You're not going to lose the whole value of your car. That's what insurance is about, hedging risk. It's a good thing to do. It's why we sign a contract to provide for contingencies that might arise. Hedging against economic risk can be a very sensible thing to do. The problem, however, is that we get into a habit of hedging risk, which is very prudent in business. And the problem is we try to hedge our risk with God. We try to hedge the risk of uncertainty. In Atlanta, the pastor that, uh, that, that my wife and I first had once when we first got married uh, was Father Joe Peacock. I loved Father Joe Peacock. He was a wonderful man, a convert. And one day he was talking about the, the mystery. He said he was trying to figure out, you know, the folks. He, and he, knew, he knew them all. The folks, it seemed like every Sunday they showed up for Mass kind of late. They got there before the gospel, but they showed up for Mass late, and they left right after communion. And he's just trying to figure out, it, it, you know, he wasn't condemning. He's just trying to figure out, okay, what's the gig? I mean, you, it's Sunday. You're saving all of eight minutes or whatever in the whole transaction. What, what's going on? And he finally figured out. He figured, you know, I guess they're saying, I'm not sure I buy into all of this, but just in case, count me in. And, you know, don't we all do that to some degree? I know I do. I mean, any time I'm not seeking communion with God, I'm hedging my bets just a little bit. I mean, if I were absolutely convinced, if my faith were perfect, why would I ever stray? Why would I ever not be in complete communion? I want it both ways. I do pray, thy will be done, but I'm often pursuing my own will first. And the problem is, the one thing in life we can't hedge is the fate of our souls. It's an all-or-nothing proposition. You know what God says about hedging? He actually has a comment about hedging. It's in the book of Revelation. In the book of Revelation, he says, You are neither hot nor cold, but lukewarm, so I vomited you out of my mouth. Now, that's not very subtle. <laughs> you know, but, but, but in business, what do we do in business? I'll tell you something. We, we're, we, do, we try to do big transactions, okay? And we may be investing in a company or buying a company or this or that, and the contracts are 60 pages long, and there's all kind of contingencies, and it's just a constant effort to manage risk. And, and that's a good, prudent thing for us to do. And we wait till the last minute to make decisions, uh, not because we're lazy, but because we know the more data we can keep gathering before we make the decision, the better the chance that we can reduce the risk and make a good prudential decision. We observe, we create strategy, we optimize, we economize, we take risk, we seek returns. Our habit is to hedge. And I, I bet we all do that to some degree. But I'll tell you, I'm a, I'm a very fortunate man. I've had material success. I have a wonderful wife who loves me. I have a wonderful daughter with whom I have a mutual admiration society. Um, but, you know, we all know the one thing that brings true happiness. And business people, they sense this too. 
the, the, the things that bring happiness, uh, the, the, all the things I mentioned, a wonderful wife, a wonderful daughter, blessings, material blessings, they're good things, but they're just reminders of what, or rather who, God does bring true happiness. The fact of the matter, we all know this deep in our hearts, the fact of the matter is the only thing on this earth, and I'm saying this as a businessman who's been fortunate to be very blessed with business success, the only thing on this earth that will bring us true happiness is saying yes to God. Y'all know this, but you know what? The world does not know this. In general, the world does not know this, and I believe it is our collective job to help tell them this, because it's a message of hope and joy. You know the old ad from the Army? Some of, many of you may be too young, or maybe they're still running it or reprised it. There used to be an ad for the Army, be all that you can be. You know, that thinking, that, that ad, be all that you can be, that is straight Christian integrated humanism. Take note of this. Every man I've ever met wants to be all that he can be. But he's using the wrong measurements. And that's part of our problem in the marketplace. God put a desire in every person I've ever met to be fully human, which is like the new Adam, Christ. But the world seduces us with the old Adam in the garden, with every sensual delight. And they want, here's what's interesting, they want you to tell them otherwise. Because they know that part doesn't work. I've had the good fortune to meet and spend a lot of time with CEOs of major companies, titans of Wall Street, great athletes, political leaders at the highest level, movie stars, and major religious leaders. I've also spent a lot of time with ordinary people like me and you. And there's something that's true for every one of those people, those famous people, and every one of me and you. And that is that those who say yes to God are happy. And those who say no to God are unhappy. The individual respective level of power, money, fame, and influence does not, in my experience, does not tend to influence the happiness one iota. The only thing that influences it seems to be whether or not they say yes or no. And yet the daily barrage of messages that we all receive at a ratio of 99 to 1 tell us that power, money, and fame and influence leads to happiness. But I'll tell you this, you're going to get your chance to talk to these people out in the marketplace. And when you go speak to them, you need to be a good businessman, good businesswoman. You need to be an opportunist. You know what Pope Benedict said we're supposed to pray for for ourselves? He said we're supposed to pray that we will have listening hearts. I love that phrase. I try to remind myself to have a listening heart. What, is it, what he means is that we need to listen to the promptings of God. I'm going to go back to the book of Revelation, chapter 3. It's verse 20. Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears me and opens the door, I will come in to dine with him and he with me. We all need to be listening for that knock. And it may come to you in business, in the marketplace. If you go into business, it most assuredly will come to you there. I think one of the most profound things ever said was by St. Augustine. He probably said more profound things than just about anybody other than Christ. You know, St. Augustine, as we all know, said, Our hearts are restless because they're made for God, and they'll be restless until they rest with God. So why don't we throw in with God whole hog? I mean, why, why do we keep hedging? 
We're not alone. Peter started walking across the water. I mean, he, he, he committed, and then, you know, halfway there he started doubting, and he started to sink. Why do we keep hedging? Well, we hedge because our faith is not strong enough, and we have a lot of temptations that allow us to keep from growing in our faith. And now I'm going to tell you about what I think is for many of us, and not just people in business, one of those temptations. And I see this with business people all the time. And the story we hear is greed and all this. That's not the temptation I see in business. The temptation I see is the desire for human respect. We know it as a sin of vanity. Now, the popular novelist Tom Wolfe, he writes a lot about this. One of his books was called The Bonfire of the Vanities. One of the more recent ones was about the college experience. Uh, I can't remember. The, Charlotte Simmons, what is it? The, uh, anyway, it, it was a book about the college experience. But what I think Wolfe is on to something. He believes that man's current condition is a function of his ever-present pursuit of status. That's the word that, that Wolfe uses, of status. In this day and age, in which there are so many means by which we might distinguish ourselves, we can end up on a never-ending quest for status, and we fall into the sin of vanity. In the end, we become much more concerned with what others think of us than what God thinks of us. I, I happen to know Nick Gingrich pretty well because I'm from Georgia, and, uh, and you know, he's from Georgia and had his political career down there. And for those of you who don't know, he led the Republican Revolution in 1994 and became Speaker of the House. Do you know what Newt used to study to understand Congress? He used to recommend to people a book called Chimpanzee Politics. Okay? It's a book about chimpanzees and the way they act within their, their little tribe and all the ways they compete with one another. And it's kind of despicable. But that's what he read to learn about Congress and the way, the way people would act in a zero-sum game, the kind of competition that they engaged in. That competition something feeds our vanity. Competition's like nitroglycerin. It can do good, but it is absolutely explosive. Without charity, competition is not just a clanging gong. It's a recipe for animalism among men. We seek to forward ourselves at the expense of others in an animalistic pursuit of superiority, like a bunch of chimpanzees. I think this issue of vanity is one of the biggest temptations for all of us. For those of us who are professed believers, our biggest temptations and failures are often going to be sins of omission, not commission. Most of us aren't stealing or murdering or committing adultery. Our biggest failures in God's eyes are going to be those times when we, when we deny him, like Peter did. And it's a sin because, like Peter, we know him. We know him. So much of what we do, businessmen, doctors, lawyers, teachers, housewives, preachers, is all about measuring up to others. In the end, the insecurity I see among business people, and I'm talking about people at the top, at the very top, four, 400 types, billionaires, the insecurity would absolutely shock you. 
They have insecurity because their self-esteem has no solid foundation. I found that as soon as I, and continue to find, as soon as I start gauging my success by the standards of the world rather than God's standards, I get into real trouble. You know what Pope Benedict said about eight months ago regarding the economic meltdown? And this was right in the throes of it. Things really started going bad about a year ago, and then he made some comments about eight months ago. He didn't condemn. He did not condemn the financial world. He did not condemn money or finance. But he talked about orders of reality. You know, this Holy Father is obsessed. He is obsessed with reality, which I love. He said the second order of reality are the things of this world, material, money. He said they're the second order of reality. He didn't say they were a fantasy. He didn't say they were bad. He said they were the second order of reality. He said the first order of reality is the word of God. He said the problem is, for instance, is sand a bad thing? No, sand is not a bad thing. But we know the gospel story about when the man built his house on sand rather than on firm rock. The house on sand gets washed away. That doesn't mean sand's a bad thing. It just means don't build your house on it. Okay? And so money and finance are not bad things, but we can't build our houses on them. And we can't build our house on the impression that others have of us and of the esteem and the respect that we're looking for from them. We live in an age where the intellectual leaders of our society, the intellectual elite of our society, they're in a complete metaphysical mess. Why? Because they bought into materialism. They bought into materialism. And I don't mean just wanting a big screen TV. Okay? They bought into the second order of reality. By the way, when the Holy Father goes to Regensburg and has his controversial comment when, when he was talking about Islam, and he goes around the world, if you listen, what he's talking about is this issue of reality and materialism and relativism that the modern world bought into. Materialism says all that matters is matter. The Enlightenment came along, the scientific world comes along and says, if we cannot sense it and measure it, it doesn't exist. I think we're starting to live in a post-material world. And what do I mean by that? I think, I see in business, matter matters less and less. Energy matters more and more. Let me explain. A thousand years ago, okay, most people were just concerned. The only material things they were really going after, food, shelter, and clothing. All right? In 1990, 90% of the people in this country worked on a farm for food. Okay? That's where most of our work went to, for food. And today, I mean, the fact that everybody in here is well-fed, very few people in here are worried about starving. I mean, that's the most material thing we need right away. We need food for our bodies. And, and we don't worry as much about that. But you know what? You know what we're starving of? We're ravenous. Our world is starving for meaning. The intellectual elite, they all bought into some version of Marxism, which says man is defined through his material terms. And it's just not so. And so it leaves us so hungry. Y'all know a balance sheet in business? A balance sheet is used to show the worth of a business. It shows assets on one side, liabilities on the other side. You subtract liabilities from assets, you get what's known as the net worth of a business. All right? Now, look at Google's balance sheet. Let me tell you what it looks like. At the end of last year, if you take their, actually right now, if you take their assets, their, li their assets minus their liabilities, you get a number of about $15 billion. That's a lot of money. Okay? $15 billion. But if you take all the stock of Google and the price of that stock 
and multiply it together. That's called the market capitalization of Google. That's what the market values Google at. So the balance sheet, assets minus liability, says 15 billion. The market says Google right now is worth 170 billion. So we got about 150 billion of stuff that's not on the balance sheet. It's not a material asset. What is it? I mean, the market says Google's worth 170 billion. Where's the 150 billion of what? Well, the stuff that creates value at Google is not matter at all. It doesn't show up on the balance sheet. The value at Google is the energy, the know-how at Google. The most valuable thing at the Coca-Cola company is not material. It's their brand. Now, we can call this kind of stuff intellectual property, but we all know it's a lot different from property the way we've traditionally thought about property. Physicists started figuring this out at the beginning of the 20th century. The physicists started looking at the, the atom, and they realized, you know, it's mostly, you look at a model of an atom, it's mostly empty space. The key to the atom is all the energy that keeps the protons and nucle uh, 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 nucleus and the electrons together. We're mostly not matter. It's all an issue of energy. You know, Heisenberg noted, if, if y'all study physics, the energy is such an essential part of matter that you can't measure both the speed and location of a subatomic particle at the same time, because when you measure it, you change it with the energy that you use to measure it. The energy is critical. And I think the leading business people of today, they're teaching the world how to live with post-materialism because that's how they're building their companies. But here's the deal. Energy alone is not enough. Why? Because the devil knows how to use energy. And I focus on this because I think as we move beyond materialism, okay, we're going to have an increasing emphasis on that which is non-material and even supernatural and it can go one way or the other. I think we have a chance because people are more open. When they see the things like Google, they're more open to the idea that it's not all material. But then they need an answer for what, then what fills that vacuum. I think we have a chance to move to a more sacramental existence. And I think this is the way to deal with our hedging tendencies. This is the way I try to deal with my hedging tendency. A sacrament is a sign of something. And it's the mixture of both the material and the non-material or the spiritual. What the balance sheet of Google teaches us, that matter is not all that matters, the church has been teaching for 2,000 years. Things are not always what they appear to be. Or rather, things are not only what they appear to be. There's more on the balance sheet at Google than just what you see. When the priest holds that consecrated host up, it may look like bread. But we know there's something non-material that has happened. So when I say we have to live in a more sacramental, spiritual manner, I mean we need to live in a way that doesn't indicate that matter is the only thing that matters, but instead indicates there is something non-material in our lives and a spiritual aspect to everything we do. Now, why does any of this matter? It matters because we're called to the new evangelization. And we can't do it without the help of these people in business. It's, it's part of what delivers food to the table. Business is what, what provides us with, with the material things that we do need. Almost 2,000 years ago, Christ gave us a message, and that is that each one of us, every one of us, is called to holiness. That's Mary Magdalene. That's Peter and Andrew, the fishermen. That's Matthew, the tax collector. That's the woman at the well. It's Joseph of Arimathea, the businessman. We're all called to holiness. When we realize this, everything changes. And when you realize you're called to holiness, 
you know, once that sinks in, everything really starts to change. And then the hard part starts. Because with that realization, that, you know, holiness is not something you can hedge. You can't be kind of holy. Nobody's kind of holy, sort of holy. It's, it's not something that goes along. And, and then we realize being holy is not something that the world may necessarily respect. Oftentimes the world ridicules it. And as Tom Wolfe has recognized in his novels, we live in a society in which the respect of others can be paramount and vanity can indeed be our very undoing. And I, I will tell you, I struggle with this issue. When I learn I'm called to holiness, I have another St. Augustine moment. And you all familiar with what St. Augustine said about celibacy. Lord, please make me chaste, but just not yet. And that's what I feel about holiness. I know I want to be holy, but wow, now just right I mean, it's a big burden. But you know, something that came to me a couple of years ago, I don't know how many of you were able to watch when, when John Paul II, uh, his funeral. And it really struck me. I had a wonderful chance to meet him a few times. And uh, I loved watching all the media try to explain the fascination the world had with John Paul II. All these people, especially young people, all these people coming from around the world to see John Paul II. You know, he was a great statesman, they said. He was a great philosopher. He was a great religious leader. On and on. A great actor. A great writer. You know the word they didn't use about him? We were attracted to John Paul II because he was holy. If you ever had the chance to meet him, you sense something supernatural about him. You knew something was different about him. He was holy. Holiness means communion with God. This man was in communion with God, and when you were around it, you wanted some of it. So there's an opportunity for us, an opening. People in business know today in their hearts that they're restless, and they can sense holiness. They sense supernaturally that there's something holy or potentially holy about the activity in which they're engaged. They sense it, but they're not sure how to get there. And it's our job as, an, as, as their co-workers, as their friends, to help them get there. Not by disavowing their vocation. Not by telling them they're engaged in something that's dirty or less than legitimate. But instead by helping them realize, to make real, the holiness of the creative impulse and the desire that God's implanted in them. That's something on which we can really build. Remember, God calls all of us to be in communion with him. If I'm not holy, it's because I've chosen not to listen to God and chosen to instead to reject his call. And that's my biggest temptation as a CEO. And one of the main reasons I reject that call is because, like Peter, I'm afraid. I'm afraid what others will do if I acknowledge Christ. I'm fearful, and I hedge my risk, and I worry about what others will think. But so did Peter. And so, what do I need to do? Christ said, apart from me, you can do nothing. When we're not united with him, we become fatigued. And so, you know, we're working by ourselves rather than with supernatural help. And in our world today, we've got to have supernatural help. And that's our vocation. We get to bring supernatural help to people in business, people in the marketplace. And you're going to come across them every day of your lives. First, by praying for them. But you can also be their spiritual doctors. And if you understand them, you can give them the medicine they need. The conviction of God's love and his infinite mercy, that's what they can ground their security on. That's how they can escape their vanity. And prayer to God. Teach them prayer to God, within which they can escape the bounds of their materialism and their 
temporality and enter into communion with him. I am grateful for you all inviting me today. Remember, people in business, they hustle because they have a healthy ambition in their hearts. Too often, it's not informed, and so the manifestation of that ambition can become disordered. But their ambition is to be what God intended for them to be, the new Adam, Christ. They want to be heroic. They want to have this heroism integrated throughout their lives. And so there's no dissonance. As you go into business and you work with them, remember, they're not a foreign species. They're human beings who happen to have a particular set of gifts from God. They're usually trying to act appropriately, but they have little patience for those who lecture or condemn them without truly understanding them and what they're engaged in. Conversely, if you make a genuine effort to understand the work of God in which they are engaged. And it is God's work that they are supposed to be doing in business. You can help them to more consciously sanctify it and thereby give God his rightful glory. And you can help them to be the souls that they're intended to be and help your own soul in the process. People in business need you and you need them and you have something really special to give to them. And so I want to be as fervent an advocate for you sharing that with them as I can possibly be. Again, thanks so much for having me this evening. I'll be happy to take questions, but thank you for the warm welcome you've given me.